Well, I, I trust that the prayer for Pastor Rich this morning is transferable. <laughs> Good to be here with you uh, folks this morning. It's been a long time. And uh, always good to be in New England and here at this new facility. I haven't been in this facility before. It was the middle school, I believe, last time. And uh, so since then, the Lord has blessed. And uh, he's going to continue to bless uh, Calvary Chapel of Green Meadow, Rhode Island. Would you turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke, the seventh chapter? Luke chapter 7, this morning. And I'd like to point your attention as we begin to verse 9 of Luke 7. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Would you join me in prayer? Lord Jesus, it's always an honor and always a pleasure to hear from you what you have to share with us, things that you have to teach us. Our souls need these things. And we thank you this morning that you have revealed yourself to us in one more way that we might know you as you deserve to be known. So bless your word by the Spirit that that might happen in our hearts. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Compassion has, has been defined this way. Your pain in my heart. Your pain in my heart. Compassion. And in this chapter, chapter 7 of Luke's Gospel, Jesus confronts the misery of a centurion and his dying servant. He confronts a grieving widow who has lost her only son. He confronts a perplexed prophet who is wondering about Jesus' identity. And he confronts a repentant sinner. And the thing that is common to each one of these stories is that he helped each and every one of them. Just like he's available to help you and me today, he helped each and every one of those that came to him. The incident before us this morning is uh, an incident that occurred in the city of Capernaum. It's important for us to remember that Jesus had been in Capernaum prior to Luke chapter 7. He'd been in this city before. And it's a situation in which Jesus says, or it says of Jesus, that he marveled. There are only two incidents in the Gospels where Jesus is recorded to have marveled about anything. One is in the Gospel of Mark where he marveled at the unbelief of the people that were in his hometown of Nazareth. And he couldn't do any mighty work there because of their unbelief. And he marveled at their unbelief. But here, he marvels at a man's faith. He marvels at the faith of the centurion, a man who exercised such amazing faith that he says, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Now we know that faith is necessary if we're going to please God. 
We also know that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So if it's our aim this morning to please God, if that's what our passion and our goal in life is, to please God, then we need to pay attention to what Jesus says about great faith because faith is a way that we please the Lord. And so the narrative begins in verse 1. And it tells us that when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well, who had been sick. Now we're told in verse 1 that Jesus, after he finished teaching the things that he'd taught in chapter 6, he enters Capernaum, small fishing village, on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And then we're told that a certain centurion is mentioned. And he was a military servant of the powerful Roman Empire. And he was there in Capernaum in order to keep the peace. You see, Rome under that time had introduced what was called, during that time, the Pax Romana, the Peace of Rome. It was a period of time that lasted just a little over 200 years. The peace was brought about by the superior military might and strength of the Roman Empire. They conquered everybody. And so no one would dare to oppose them, so there was a militarily imposed peace that was on the world in that day. And this centurion was there in Capernaum for that reason to assist and serve Rome in the keeping of that peace. We're told that the centurion had a servant. That was common in those days to have servants. Uh, as little as and probably more than 15% of the entire population of the Roman Empire were slaves. That means they were human beings that were owned by other human beings. But this servant, owned by this centurion, was not an object to the centurion. He wasn't someone that he wanted to dispose of at all. The centurion, we're told, cared about him. 
He was dear to him, the text says. There was a deep, personal love that he had for his servant, which tells us that this centurion, this commander over a hundred other Roman soldiers, he had a heart. I had the privilege of pastoring in Monterey, California for 27 years. In Monterey, we had the Defense Language Institute where we, our military trains uh, our soldiers and our military personnel in foreign languages to serve in foreign fields. There's also the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, which trains officers from the various branches of the military. There was also at that time the former, now former, Fort Ord, where Army enlisted were, come, were coming to be trained. Some of the greatest men I've ever met, and women, were in the military. I met colonels, I met generals, I met captains, I met commanders, I met master sergeants, I met enlisted men from all classes, and I've learned to have great respect for them and this centurion was in their class. He was that kind of a man, a man that commanded respect because of the kind of person that he was. It was always fun for me to, to watch. Uh, there would be times when I'd go on to the Naval Postgraduate School, and I'd go with one of the members of our church, who in this one case that I'm thinking about, at that time, he was a lieutenant commander. And he was in his Navy dress whites, and we walked around on the base, and wherever we went, military personnel from all branches stood to attention and saluted. And, oh, it was amazing, you know, here. But in our church, this particular individual played the keyboards on our worship team. But other commanders and other uh, officers, it was not uncommon to see them in the nursery taking care of two-year-old children. And what a model, what an example that was for our church. You know, these men with great authority, these women with great authority and position in the United States military, they're serving in the nursery in the church. And they were demonstrating that the greatest in the kingdom is the one that is the servant of all. This centurion was like them. Now, the servant of the centurion was near death. Due to some sort of illness, we're not told what. So the centurion, we're told, sent elders of the Jews to Jesus. Now he sent them. It could have been a command. And they could have done what he wanted them to do out of sheer obedience. But reading the text, we see that there's more to that relationship as well. We get the distinct impression that they wanted to plead with Jesus on behalf of this centurion and his servant. And so we're told that they begged Jesus earnestly to do something for this centurion's servant. It was sincere. They thought very highly of the centurion because we're told he loved our nation, our ethnos, our people. He loves the Jews. And secondly, he had built them a synagogue. This is a picture of the synagogue that is in the ruins of Capernaum today. And if one travels to Israel today, they'll find these ruins. And among these ruins is this synagogue dated at about the 4th century A.D. What that means is that 
the present ruins are not the same synagogue that had been built in Jesus' day, but what we have discovered is that archaeologists have, under the present ruins, discovered the ruins of a foundation from a first century synagogue, which was probably the synagogue built by this very centurion. Now note that the Jewish elders told Jesus that he was worthy for whom you should do this thing. That's what they said because that's how they thought. They operated under a system of works. In their system of works, in their own minds, they operated under the idea that one deserved blessings. He's worthy that you should do this for his servant. They operated under this system of deserving blessings. But of course, it's very important that we understand that this is contrary to the New Testament idea of grace. Grace is the opposite of a system of works. In fact, this is what the Bible says in the fourth chapter of Romans. To him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. In other words, if I work for my blessing, then if the blessing comes, it's really not something that God gives me by grace. It's something that I've earned, and he becomes my debtor. But God isn't any man's debtor. He doesn't pay wages to people for their good works. But the one who doesn't work for blessing, but simply believes that they don't deserve it, but they believe in the nature of God to give good things, and they simply believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, their faith is counting to them for righteousness. That's the New Testament idea. God gives his blessing because he's a gracious God, and it's by grace that we have been saved through faith. And that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So we're told in the text that Jesus went with them. The plea of the Jews stirred up the compassion that was in the heart of Jesus, the pain of the centurion for his servant, and the pain of the servant himself went right into the heart of our Lord. Compassion is your pain in my heart, and he allowed the pain of these two men to go right directly into his heart, so he went with them. He was near to the centurion's house, and the centurion sent some of his friends to Jesus, men who would represent his heart, the elders of the Jews. The centurion's heart was to tell Jesus, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof. But the elders of the Jews, when they came to Jesus, they said to Jesus, he is worthy for whom you should do this thing. Notice the huge disparity between the centurion's own confession of his worthiness, I'm not worthy, and what the elders of the Jews said, he is worthy. They were very different in their views of things. And we have to look at the comment by Pastor David Guzik, the centurion was a remarkable man. The elders said he was worthy, he said he was not worthy. They praised him for building a house of worship. He felt unworthy that Jesus would come to his house. They said he was deserving, he felt himself undeserving. What this shows is that strong faith and great humility are entirely 
compatible. Pastor Warren Wearsby adds this comment. Imagine a Roman officer telling a poor Jewish rabbi that he was unworthy to have him enter his house. The Romans were not known for displaying humility, especially before their Jewish subjects. So this was remarkable that this centurion should demonstrate such humility. And the request was simply this, say the word and my servant will be healed. Now something we've passed over so far in the telling of the story is the fact that this centurion had heard about Jesus. That's important. He had heard about Jesus. What that means is that the things that Jesus had previously done in Capernaum while he was there the first time had come into the ears of the centurion. And the things that Jesus had done in Capernaum recorded in Luke's Gospel in the fourth chapter. Things like teaching with authority that was unparalleled. Casting out demons, healing all those that were sick of any kind of illness. And these things uh, came to the centurion and he heard about them. Which is understandable. Uh, We're told that, according to history, about 1,500 people lived in Capernaum at that time. You know how news travels fast in a small town? And news traveled fast to the centurion. And this news led this centurion to specific conclusions about Jesus. He heard about Jesus' authority in teaching. He heard about Jesus' authority over unclean spirits. He heard about Jesus' power over every kind of sickness. He heard about Jesus' willingness to to remain there in the city for long hours, listening to and receiving anyone who came to him about anything, and he healed them. He heard about these things, and this led him to conclusions about Jesus. This is how he thought. If Jesus can do this, then this is what he must be like. If he has this kind of power and authority, then he must be this kind of an individual. And he took all that into this encounter with our Lord. So we see in verse 8 that he says to Jesus, I also am a man placed under authority and I have soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And it was that statement that this centurion made that incited within Jesus this amazement. I've not seen such great faith, not even in Israel. What was it that caused Jesus to be amazed? Why did he marvel at this man's faith? Well, notice that the centurion's statement in verse 8 begins with the phrase, I also am a man placed under authority. The word also is key here. He recognized in Jesus something that was true of himself. Being a military man, he understood these things. He himself, the centurion, was under authority. He was a centurion, but he was under authority. As a centurion, he commanded a hundred men. But as a centurion, he was not a commander. Commanders were the rank above him. He wasn't a commander. He was under the authority of a commander. And he was a, a centurion who had soldiers under him. 
And what he did, what the centurion did as a representative of the Roman Empire and the Roman army, he did because he was under authority himself. He received commands, and so therefore he was able to carry out those commands with confidence. That's where his credentials came from. And, and this centurion recognized that Jesus himself also was under authority, that he was receiving commands, and that he had received authority from another source, and namely, of course, the authority that Jesus operated by was the authority of his Father in heaven. And so we read in the Gospel of John statements like, these, most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. And then his statement, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will but the will of the Father who sent me. When Jesus became a human being, he subjected himself entirely to the will of his father, just as he had been subject willingly to the will of his father in eternity. And what Jesus would say, and what Jesus was intimating was this, the works that I do and the works that I have been doing tell a story. They give witness to the fact that I've been sent by my father. They give witness to the fact that what I am doing, I am doing at his command, and I am doing them by his authority, and I am doing them by his power. And this centurion recognized something of that. He said, I also am a man under authority, like you, having soldiers under me. What this centurion was saying about Jesus, and this is key to understanding why Jesus was amazed at his faith, this centurion was saying of Jesus, I recognize that you're a man under authority. I also recognize the authority you have. The authority you have is like the authority I have. Whenever I command anything of anyone, they do it. They have to. They always obey. They do what I say. When I say to a soldier, come here or go there, or to a servant, do this or do that, they do it. All I have to do is command it and it gets done. That's the authority I have. And Lord Jesus, he was saying to, to our, our master, he was saying, Lord Jesus, you have the same kind of authority. I've heard about what you do. I've heard about your power. I've heard about your authority over unclean spirits. I've heard about the fact that you can heal any kind of disease and illness that exists. I've heard about your authoritative teaching, very different from anything that is going on anywhere else in Israel. You speak as though these words and these truths came directly from you, as though you thought them and you made them up, that they came from you. I know that about you. I know that that's the kind of authority you have. And you have the same authority I have. Whatever you say in the spiritual realm, whatever you say in the physical realm, must happen because you said it. My orders are always obeyed within my authority, within your authority. All your orders are always obeyed as well. And so this is what I'm asking you to do. Just speak the word and my serpent will be healed. 
And that was the faith that caused Jesus to be amazed at this man because this centurion knew who Jesus was. He'd never seen any kind of faith like that. And it's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus felt it necessary that everyone know about this kind of faith. He turned around to the crowd and to those that were following and he said, truly, I've never seen this kind of faith, not anywhere in Israel. He wanted it to be a teaching lesson for everyone that was there that day. This is what great faith looks like. It's right here. Listen to what this man just said. That's what great faith really is. This is how the Son of God ought to be trusted. This is how he should be believed. This is the kind of faith, Jesus would say, that is worthy of me. And verse 10 tells us that when those who had been sent to Jesus returned to the house, they found that Jesus' word was obeyed and the servant was well who had been previously sick. He just spoke the word, apparently, and he was healed. The same one who in Genesis 1-3 said, Light be, and light was, spoke the word, and the servant was healed. He didn't need to say it. He could have just thought it. His will, however expressed, became the occurrence of the healing. And the healing of this servant proved that Jesus has the authority that the centurion said that he had. So we have to ask the question this morning as we wrap up toward a conclusion What was unique about the centurion's faith? What was unique about his faith? And the first thing that was unique about his faith is that he had an altogether correct concept of who Jesus is. He had a correct view of Jesus Christ, one of the very few that did have a correct view of Jesus Christ. It's very important if we're going to have great faith to know Jesus and to see Jesus exactly as he is. Not to think less of him than he is. Of course, it's impossible to think more of him than he is because he's unequaled. But to think less of him than he is is an evident mistake. A.W. Tozer, in his classic book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says in his Uh, introduction to the book, he said, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are not worthy of him. Whenever idolatry is entered into, it's always because someone abandons or neglects who God really is and what he's really like, and they start thinking about God in terms that are not true of him. But the opposite is also true. The essence of true worship is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are true of him. When we really know him as he is. And this centurion had an altogether correct concept of who Jesus is. So to illustrate, just imagine being on the edge of a precipice. And down below, in front of you, is this huge chasm, very deep. And you have the assignment, you have to get over to the other side, to the ledge that's on the other side of the chasm. 
But you look in front of you and there's a man-made bridge made out of broken boards and tattered ropes. And you're not sure at all that this bridge is going to be able to withhold your weight and you don't know if you're going to make it across. But you're standing there and you do your best to psych yourself up for it and you do your best little engine that could imitation and you say, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can and you start across on this tattered bridge with tattered ropes and plunk, there you are at the bottom of the chasm. You had great faith, but the object of your faith couldn't support your desire to get across to the other side. But take the same scenario. There you are on the precipice, chasm below, got to get over to the other side. And in front of you is a bridge that has been built and designed by the same builders of the Golden Gate Bridge out on the left coast where I live. And there it is in front of you, and you're not quite sure about crossing bridges. You've never been on one before. This is scary. What's going to happen if I put my weight on this bridge and I'm going to walk across this bridge? Can I make it to the other side? And I'm not very sure at all, but the bridge itself is so strong, it is obviously going to be able to support my weight and the weight of a million people. But I go ahead with weak faith and with apprehension about the whole process and I start across and sure enough, after a time, I make it to the other side. This is what the illustration means. Uh, great faith in a weak bridge will fail you and will put you in the chasm below. But even fledgling faith, weak faith, wobbly faith put in a strong bridge will get you over to the other side. It's not how much my faith is that matters. It's the object of my faith that is all important. Who am I trusting in? Jesus said in that regard, if you have faith as large as a grain of a mustard seed, you shall say to this mountain, be removed and it will be cast into the, into the sea. Because faith is based upon its object, not upon how abundant it is in itself. And this centurion had great faith. One of our problems is we spend far too little time getting to know God and contemplating him and what he's capable of. May I suggest that the more time we spend contemplating God and getting to know him as he's revealed in scripture, the greater our faith will be and the more we'll trust him for things that are supernatural and above and beyond what we are capable of doing. That's the suggestion. Wearsby suggests if this Roman with very little spiritual instruction had that kind of faith in God's word, how much greater our faith ought to be because we have an entire Bible to read and study to learn about the nature of God. So how can we increase our faith? I'm going to make two suggestions and then we'll be done. The first way to increase our faith is to know the Bible and get to know the God of the Bible. Number one, increase faith, <laughs> know the Bible and get to know the Bible and the God of the Bible well. Read the Bible. Read the Bible from the beginning to the end. A lot of people haven't read the Bible from the beginning to the end. 
I remember a man in our church years ago, I challenged the fellowship at the beginning of the year, let's see if you can read through the whole Bible this year and see what God will do in your life. He took me up on the challenge. He didn't tell me that he was taking me up on the challenge. And this was a man that was very involved in ministry. He had an international uh, sense of authority in, in the things that he was doing for various international ministries. He was very well known. And, but he had never read through the whole Bible. And he took me up on the challenge. He read through the whole Bible that year. And at the end of that year, he came back and he said, Bill, I cannot even begin to tell you the things that God has done in my life, having just read through the entire scripture. It takes about four or five chapters a day to do it. It's not a a daunting task. It's easy. Anybody could do it. But he did it. And his faith grew leaps and bounds. Read the Bible, read every book of the Bible, and constantly ask yourself the question as you're reading through the scripture, what does this passage, what does this story, what does this section of scripture teach me about God? Make that the number one question. What does this teach me about God, who he is, what he's like? What do I learn about him by knowing this Bible story? What do I learn about him about reading concerning this Bible truth? Uh, We spent recently four and a half months in Peru, and I was directing as an interim director uh, the Bible College down in the Andes Mountains. And I taught a class uh, called The Attributes of God, The Characteristics of God. And uh, the students got excited. They really loved the class. And uh, what happened was, is that as we were teaching the class, we were teaching different characteristics of God, attributes of his, like his, uh, his omnipresence, he's everywhere at once, or his, his complete knowledge, he's omniscient, he knows everything that can be known, or his wisdom. Uh, but the favorite attribute of God, of these students, as it turns out, was the attribute of God's infinitude, that he's infinite. Now, this isn't a time word, this is a, this is a spatial Word that has to do with limitation. God is imitate, he is infinite. He's without limit. He's without limit in his being. And this was their favorite attribute that God is without limit because they learned to combine the attribute of God's infinitude with his other attributes. And they thought, well, if he's without limit, if he's limitless, then let's combine that with his love for example. That means his love is without limit. Let's combine his infinitude with his faithfulness. His faithfulness is without limit. How about combining it with his mercy? His mercy is without limit. Sometimes we can think that God, you know, gets tired of being merciful and, well, he was merciful to me for the thousandth time yesterday about this thing, but on the thousandth first time that I do this, he's not going to be merciful today. But he's without limit in his mercy. And, and so they combined these attributes. And what I saw, what we saw happening in the students of the course of the 15-week semester is that they were growing in their faith. They were growing in their faith in God himself. And their prayers were even changing. We noticed that. Their prayers were changing. By the time the semester was over, they were praying from the nature of God and from his promises to the request, and it was powerful. They were watching God work in their lives. 
The wisdom is this, know God well and we'll trust him more because we only trust those that we know. Know God well, we'll trust him more and we only trust implicitly those whom we know accurately and it's impossible to know God well without the Bible. Read the Bible, learn of God from the Bible and we'll trust him more. And the second thing that I would suggest that is an application of this story is simple. Ask God to do things. Ask God to do things. And now this centurion, when he heard about his servant's illness, could have remained quiet about it, not said anything to anyone, just kept it kind of within his heart, grieving concerning his servant and so on. But he had the temerity, he had the boldness to send to Jesus to ask Jesus to do something. He asked Jesus to do something, and guess what? Jesus did it. Now, what does the Bible say? In James chapter 4, verse 2, it says, You have not because you ask not. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus is pretty much at the point of begging us to ask. And he's talking about you know, these kinds of matters. And he says, I say to you, ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. And it's even stronger than that in the original language. Ask and continue to ask, and it will be given to you. Seek and continue to seek, and you will find. Knock and continue to knock, and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, and to him who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be open to you. For what father is there among you? If his son were to ask for a fish, would instead give him a serpent? Or for, if he were to ask for an egg, would give him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your own children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give good things to those who ask him? Ask for more stuff. Ask God to do things. And good stuff happens. Uh, I gave this message in Modesto couple months back and had lunch with the pastor uh, a couple weeks later and he told me a story about an older woman in the church who was there when this message was being given and uh, the very next day uh, she was it was a very hot day in Modesto it can get very hot there in that city the very next day she was in her home, and then she had to go out into her back porch to do something, and she closed her sliding glass door, and somehow, inadvertently, the glass door locked behind her. And she was in trouble. I mean, she was an older woman and apparently somewhat frail, and that scorching heat was a dangerous situation for her, and she didn't have a key to get into her house, and what was she going to do? And it was at that point she remembered this phrase, ask God to do things. And she said, well, the Lord can do stuff like open doors. I mean, you know, after all, you know, the pastor did quote the message and quote the passage, uh, knock and the door will be open to you. So, <laughs> so she just asked, she said, Lord, I, I, I don't know what she exactly prayed, but she asked him to, to help her. 
And, and right as she did, as she finished her prayer, she heard a little clicking sound. And she turned around, and she went to that sliding glass door, put her hand on the handle, and moved, and the door opened. <laughs> and she had that story to share. I mean, it's a simple little thing. It's a simple little illustration of faith in action. But she had that happen for her because she asked. Had she not asked, perhaps it wouldn't have happened. So maybe you're working with someone and you find out that they're sick. Or maybe they have a family member that's very sick and they're very grieved. You notice their, their sad countenance that day. Why not ask God for healing? And why not ask them, can I pray for you or can I pray for your relative? I've rarely have asked people if I can pray for them and they've said no. No matter if they're believers or not, they will allow that. Maybe pray for them right then if the situation calls for it and if it's appropriate. Pray for them right then and there. Or tell them, uh, you know, I prayed for you last night, the next day. And watch what God does because you asked on behalf of this other person. Watch what kind of open doors open up to share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. Watch what God will do because he does stuff when we ask. How can we increase our faith? Well, here it is. Get to know God and get to know him through his word. And you'll trust him more. And not only that, but ask God to do things. Pastor Chuck Smith, my pastor for many years, used to say this. The difficulty of any task is measured by the capacity of the one doing the work. The difficulty of any task is measured by the capacity of the one doing the work. If there's a 10-pound weight on the, on the ground, and I were to say to my three-year-old granddaughter, uh, pick up this weight, well, that would be, if she was able to do it, a, a task that was formidable for her. But for me, I can just take these two fingers and pick it up. It's not a problem at all, because I have a capacity to pick up those kinds of weights. Very easily, she doesn't. Take a thing like cancer, which for physicians and surgeons and, and medical practitioners, it's a daunting, daunting thing. They may have uh, come up with all kinds of treatments and so on and so forth, but they realize how dangerous uh, stage four cancer is. But for God, who made the human body and who breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life, and who is all-powerful and created the universe, and in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. For him, the healing of cancer, there's no difficulty to it at all. The measure of the difficulty, or the difficulty of any task, is measured by the capacity of the one doing the work. So we're looking at, say, an illness, and we're thinking this is way beyond the doctors. This is way beyond the medical professionals. This is way beyond anything I know about or understand. But who am I talking to when I ask? Who am I talking to when I ask? Getting that concept, the right concept of God in my mind before I ask is very, very important when I pray. He's the one that's capable of doing it. Jeremiah didn't understand what God was saying when he said to Jeremiah, Jeremiah, these people are going to go into captivity in Babylon and then they're going to come back into this land and retake the land. 
And Jeremiah didn't understand how that could happen. And he, he stumbled in his faith. And Jeremiah was asked by God. God responded to Jeremiah with a question. This is the question that the living God asked Jeremiah the prophet. He said, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too difficult for me? It was a rhetorical question. He just said basically to Jeremiah, go your way and ponder that question for a while and then come back and see where you stand on the matter. Is there anything too difficult for me? And the answer, of course, is no. He can do anything. Does God ever get tired? No. Has he exercised so much power that day that he doesn't have time for one more thing that he can do? Got to go take a nap or something like that? No, he never gets tired. He's not weary. Doesn't run out of power because he's limitless in his power. Therefore, he can be asked. So here it is. Jesus amazed at this centurion, marveling at his faith. When I read this story, I have to ask another thing. God, give me faith like that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Because there is nothing too difficult for you, Father. And because you are without limit in every single one of your characteristics. You are that thing in a limitless way. You're limitless in your love, in your mercy, in your faithfulness, in your power. Thank you for all of that. Our faith is in a bridge that is so strong that as long as we're keeping our eyes on you, we can't possibly fall apart. Thank you for that. And we pray that prayer because it's pleasing to you when we believe you and with faith, it's possible to please you. But without faith, it's impossible to please you. Because it's your will that we please you. And it's your will that we trust you and have faith in you. We pray that you'd increase our faith. Teach us these great lessons, Lord, which are so simple but so important. That we might know you better. And then might watch you work. Lord, it, it hasn't even been written, the story that is coming for each one of our lives. We've never lived the days that are ahead of us. You're in control of each and every one of them. Lord, would you expand our borders and increase our faith and cause us, Lord, to see that you are able to do great things even though we are the ones you're working with because it's not our power that gets it done. It's yours. So we pray for your blessing. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.